So today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. So just to start off, have you ever thought about how doctors and lawyers, their, their jobs are described as being a practice? You, know, they, you see they have a practice of law or a, a, a practice for a doctor's office. Most other professions don't use that type of terminology. I mean, I wouldn't say that I practice finance. You know, uh, Nathan and, and uh, Tom wouldn't say they practice engineering. Chef Matthew doesn't say he practices culinary arts. Um, so what, does it, what, what is different about a doctor or a lawyer that makes their practice or their work practice? Well, I had the same question, and I didn't know the answer, so naturally I went to Google, and I said, why is a doctor's office, why is a lawyer's office called a practice? And Google gave me the answer, because Google's always reliable. Um, and this is what it told me. And this is specifically for lawyers, but it says, the practice of law is called a practice because it involves constant attention, reflection, and evolution. The best lawyers understand that the practice of law is not stagnant. It is ever-changing, and so too must attorneys evolve with it. I mean, Jeff can speak to this. You know, once you pass the bar, once you become a lawyer, the work doesn't stop there. Um, once you receive your doctorate and, and pass the MCATs and become a doctor, the learning and the evolving doesn't stop there. And you can say the same thing about those other professions I've uh, talked about, like finance and engineering, being a chef. It, it, all those professions require constant growth, and it, it's throughout your entire career. Um, and being a Christian is not much different. We become Christians when, in Romans 3.22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then in verse 24, it says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. At that point, we are justified. Our old selves are, are dead, and we become a new soul, and we become Christians. But it doesn't stop there. There's still work that has to be done. And I know that that work word is tricky. We don't like to use work and faith together all the time. But what I hope is through this lesson, you will see who is actually doing that work in our lives. But before we get into our text, let's look back a little bit in Paul's letter. And up to this point, there's a couple points that Paul makes that helps to put our text into context. First, he talks about living to please God, not man, in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. The whole point of Paul and Timothy and Silvanus visiting and teaching the gospel to the Thessalonians, Hey, Ruth. <laughs> Sorry, just <laughs> excited to see her. Um, the whole point of them coming and teaching the, the gospel to the Thessalonians wasn't so that 
other men, namely Christians, would see or hear what they were doing and say they are pleasing man through their lessons. No, the, the point was for their disciple, of their discipleship was to please the Lord by spreading the good news of Jesus throughout the land. And we'll see in our text how the Thessalonians received that word. They were transformed by it and living it out to please God as well. Secondly, Paul longed to return to supply what was lacking in their faith. And he talked about that in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He said, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, so that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Upon hearing the good news from Timothy of the Thessalonians' faith and love and their longing to see Paul again, Paul reciprocates that feeling and his longing to return to them. But no doubt Timothy also brought back some concerns about what he had for the, the Thessalonians, what he had witnessed that was lacking in the people of Thess- Thessalonica. And Paul was eager to get back to them, to see them face and face to face because he loved them. He was proud of the people that they were becoming. And he also knew that there was still some work that needed to be done. And our text is going to help us to understand some of those areas that Paul felt they needed some reminding in. So again, turn to your, turn to your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12, and I'll read through the text here. <clears throat> Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that, you, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we had told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all of the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and to be dependent on no one. So the theme for my lesson is setting ourselves apart from the world. And we'll look at it in two sections. The first section is calling. This is verses 1 through 8. And the second section is practice, verses 9 through 12. So looking at that first section... I'm, that I'm calling, calling. 
there are three aspects of this calling that we'll see in our text. It's to please God, sanctification, and purity. So right away we read the words at the beginning of our text that says, finally, then. So that clues us in that we're getting into some type of transition in Paul's letter here. And up to this point, Paul has been referring to a past time that he was with the Thessalonians. Um, But now Paul is not asking, but urging the Thessalonians to take what they have received, what they've learned from Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus, and walk in a way that is pleasing to God. The letter, the, our section starts by saying, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Paul uses this metaphor of walking throughout many of his letters, and it's, it's his way of saying, in everything that you do. And in this case, the everything you do to, is to please God. Which, according to our text, and likely from Timothy's reports, they were doing this. They were already pleasing God with what they were doing. So, but this was much more than just a, you know, keep up the good work pep talk. At the end of verse 1, Paul urges them to not only to continue to do their good deeds, but to do it more and more. In a way, he was saying, outdo each other in your good deeds, in your good works. This also goes back to the example I gave at, uh, at the beginning of the professions that require ongoing practice. Paul is emphasizing, emphasizing here that despite the reports of them doing everything that they had learned, they can't cease to be to do or cease to stop or cease to stop doing it or um, at any point stop doing what they were doing. It's an ongoing and part of enduring to the end. And if it wasn't enough for Paul's authority to be telling them this, he asks and urges them to do this all in the Lord Jesus. Look again at the beginning of our text, and I'm paraphrasing here. But he says, We ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to walk and to please God and to do it so, do so more and more. But not only is Paul urging them in the Lord Jesus. He reminds them in verse 2 who the instructions that they were receiving are ultimately from. Verse 2 in the New American Standard Bible version says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This wasn't just some authority that Paul was given in this world. This was authority that was given to him by Jesus. I mean, Paul once had worldly authority in his younger years when he was tasked with persecuting Jews and to displease God. But now Paul has been tasked to pass along these instructions and these commandments through the power of Jesus so that all who call him Savior would walk in a way that would be pleasing to God. The Thessalonians didn't just receive this word and start acting properly at a flip of a switch just because they simply heard it. No, they also received the Spirit of the Lord Jesus within themselves to have the power 
to fulfill the calling that they had to separate themselves from the world and to please God with all that they do. Now remember Paul said to the Thessalonians, you're already doing this well, but he urged them to do it more and more. And just like our professions that require more and more growth, Paul tells us in verse 3 what that growth looks like as a Christian. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. It is God's will for you to be declared holy, to be set apart, to be separated from the world. All Christians are called to be sanctified through the power of the Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit that lives in us, so that we may be presented holy, be presented blameless, when one day we face our Lord face to face. I mean, this is the gospel, right? This is why Jesus died and rose again. Not only to bear our sins and to, to declare us righteous, but also so that every day we would grow more and more like him and grow further and further away from what it means to be of the world. That we would be a witness of God's glory in this world. And not even by anything that we would be doing on our own, but through the power of Christ shining through us. And this is what Paul meant back in chapter 1 when he said, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And through the power of our sanctification, this is how others are saved. When others see how different we are, and that they start asking questions. And when we proclaim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as the source of all of that action. But again, this doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't ever stop either. The sanctification of a Christian is ongoing. It builds upon itself for our entire lifetime. Paul goes on to give a few ways that Christians ought to act to separate themselves from the world in their sanctification. The first being just as much a hot-button topic now as it was in the first century Thessalonica, Thessalonica is sexual immorality. Just like we are bombarded daily with sexual images and innuendo, Paul and the Thessalonians would have been facing the same temptations and struggles themselves. I mean, sexual misconduct was so widespread in all of the Greco-Roman world that many people saw that practice as normal and sometimes even encouraged. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 5.11 when he said, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. What better way to set apart ourselves from the world than to go directly against the, the social and the cultural norms of the time, especially if those are flying right in the face of God's commandments? And that commandment being not to commit adultery. And in no way is Paul saying here that sexuality is wrong. In fact, sexuality is a gift from God. But it becomes sinful when it's used in the wrong way. 
Look how Paul describes how a Christian is called to approach this in verses 4 and 5. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that word holiness in the text can also be translated as sanctification. And as part of sanctification, as a part of the way we grow and we continue to grow in our faith, and as a part of God's will, we are called to know how to properly control our bodies. As Christians, we're meant to enjoy sexuality. God calls us to it, but only for its intended purposes. James H. Grant Jr., in his commentary, simply puts it this way. God designed sexual activity for a male and female inside the covenant bonds of marriage. I mean, to you and I, that's pretty basic, right? That's what we've been taught our entire lives. But if Pastor Jeff put that on Twitter or Facebook, I only say Jeff because he's got a lot more followers than I do. But if he put that on Facebook... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you put it on any of the social media, he'd be engaged in arguments for days with people who would be arguing about what he was saying, what what is so simple for us to understand. That's because the idea or the act of sexuality has been so perverted, it's been so twisted in our world that everyone feels entitled to engage in it in however or with whomever they feel like. And what does Paul say is the source of this? Look at verse 5. In the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. I mean, as humans, we have passions, we have desires, we have wants. It's, it's part of our human nature. But when those passions and those desires are lustful, we're no different than the Gentiles that do not know God. And I know it would be easy to be able to say, or just to say, hey, I know God, so I'm not like those Gentiles. But if you look beyond just the phrase Gentiles that do not know God as a title, no, you could be someone who knows God, someone who's heard God's commandments, who, who's been to church, who knows their Bible, but you could still not know God, at least not in the sense that Paul was referring to here. And to be truly different from the Gentiles, to truly know God means to truly give yourself your whole being, your whole body, in full submission to the will of God. Because without God being in control of our thoughts, our actions, our passions and desires, we're only going to fail over and over. And we're going to be no different than the, the Gentiles that did not know God. Paul continues with a command and a warning in verse 6 pertaining to the sanctity of marriage. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, it may be kind of hard or easy to misunderstand who the brother that Paul is referring to here. Remember how brother can be translated to brother and sister. And he's talking about our spouses here. He's talking about men and women transgressing, wronging, committing adultery against their wives and their husbands. 
He's instructing them that by abstaining from sexual immorality, by controlling one's body and not giving into the passions of lust, we are being sanctified. We are honoring the Lord and not transgressing against our wives and our husbands. But what happens if we don't do these things? Look at the terrifying warning at the end of verse 6. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. At the end of chapter 1, Paul writes about Jesus being the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. But here, Jesus is the one who's doing the avenging. He's the one who's going to be bringing the wrath upon those who transgress against his brother or sister. Against the ones who do not know God. Against the ones who do not know how to control their bodies and abstain from sexual immorality. And all these instructions, all these warnings from Paul are all meant to help us to realize that we have been called to be different from the world. In verse 7 he says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And like I talked about earlier, this holiness or the sanctification is meant to set ourselves apart from the world, that we would be presented pure before the Lord. Not that we would ever become completely pure in this world, but that we would show through our hope and through our submission to the Lord the evidence of our new selves in Christ. Paul ends this section with a truth about those who disobey these commands, but then a sweet, sweet reminder. Look at verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul gives one more warning about those who do not heed this call, but also gives a reason for hope. The hope that God has given us, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. God gives us everything we need to be able to fight off those temptations that we face in the world every day. He gives us the Holy Spirit that gives us the strength and the means to grow closer and closer to God every single day. And the Spirit, Holy Spirit that allows us to fall to our knees and to give everything over to the Lord and to say that we cannot do this under our own power, and that we're going to fail every single time, and plead to God for forgive us for not trusting in him. And he takes on all of our burdens and says, Do not worry, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, as he said in Jeremiah 29.11. When we fully give ourselves over to the Lord, we can't help but to heed the call from the Lord to set ourselves apart from the world. We can't help but to please him with all that we do to be sanctified and to be purified through him because it's no longer us that's running the show, but the Lord through his Holy Spirit. Now that the Thessalonians have received this calling and, and exactly what they are called to, Paul tells them 
to set themselves apart from the world through their works, through their practice. Specifically, Paul instructs the Thessalonians to live in brotherly love. And this section starts off much like the beginning of the first section with Paul saying, you're doing this well, but do it more and more. Verses 9 and 10 read like this from the New American Standard. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul is focusing on one of the great commandments that Jesus tells us that is in the law, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul even ties it into the first section when he says in verse 9, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In other words, through our sanctification, God is showing us how we ought to love one another. And this is evidenced through the acts of the Thessalonians from the reports that we've heard throughout this letter about how they've been spreading the word and spreading the gospel to all the people of Macedonia. But again, Paul urges them to do this more and more. Just as he instructed them earlier to continue to walk in a way that pleases God more and more. Paul goes on to give the Thessalonians three ways to continue to show their brotherly love for one another and to set apart themselves from the world. Look at verse 11. He says, To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. First, Paul instructs them to aspire to live quietly. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't go and talk to people or be in, in other people's lives, but what Paul means is that we, act to, we ought to act in a way that's unassuming, not going out and looking or causing trouble in the world. We ought to live, in a, live out a quiet and humble type of life. I mean, how many of you have seen on social media people posting things um, that seem to just want to be stirring up trouble, um, not really prompted in any way, but they just wanted to argue or complain about something? I mean, you should see the people that post on, like, the community sites around here, what they're actually complaining about. And it's not that we shouldn't have opinions or concerns or shouldn't share our thoughts, but... When we're complaining or putting people down or causing controversy, we're acting just like the world does. And that's not how God has called us to act. And it certainly isn't showing brotherly love to others. I mean, Paul demonstrated this to the Thessalonians themselves when the, the Jews were starting to stir up and gather up and um, attacking them, and he slipped out in the cover of night so that they wouldn't cause further trouble to them. Secondly, Paul says to mind your own affairs, or in other words, mind your own business. <laughs> and this goes hand in hand with the first one. And Paul addresses this in his second letter to the, second, uh, to the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians three eleven through 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ 
to do their work quietly and earn their own living. And this gives an impression that there was people within the, the brotherhood that weren't working, but spending time meddling in other people's affairs. I mean, not, o- not only were they not earning their own wages, but they were spending time perhaps engaging in gossip or just dealing with things that they had no business dealing with. And this certainly wasn't a way to show brotherly love and went directly against what Paul's saying in his last instruction, to work with your hands. Paul again demonstrated this to the Thessalonians themselves um, when he mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 8, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. There is work to be done in the body of Christ. And when one or more people are idle or not doing things, the whole body suffers. I mean, everyone must be demonstrating Christ-like love for one another, not by being idle and watching everyone else do all the work, but by contributing their fair share. And not out of obligation, but just for the love for one another. And we're called to be a witness to the world around us. Like in verse 12, he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. As Christians, we are called to be different. We are called to be set apart from the world. We are to walk in a way that pleases God and to be sanctified. I mean, this is how outsiders, this is how the world sees that we are different. How we are serving others and serving our Lord out of love. This is how non-Christians see us and say, hey, he isn't like most people. Or they might ask, why do you go out of your way to serve others? Where do you get the motivation to be like that? It's because we have been called to show love to our brothers and sisters. And we don't do it with dependence of strength and motivation that we get from the world, or what the world provides, but from the daily bread that is provided through Jesus Christ every single day. So I ask you, where, where does your motivation come from? Where does your strength come from to walk differently every day, different from the world? I'm telling you, a couple of weeks ago, I would have probably given some biblical answer that would have sounded right, but without the heart behind that answer. But after going to T4G and being so inspired by that, and after sitting down with someone and having the genuine love for someone coming and showing me the way, I truly see what it means to live out every day and everything that I do for God. But you don't have to go to a conference to feel or to witness or experience that transformation. You can sit down with one of our elders, sit down with one of the deacons, sit down with one of the, I'll call them veteran saints. I won't call them senior saints. 
but someone who truly knows what it means to be set apart from the world and to live for Jesus every day. I'm telling you, it will change the whole way that you approach your entire life and to fulfill the calling that we have to be holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of perfect timing, of perfect wisdom, and a God who provides everything that we ever need in this life. Lord, I pray that as we've been called to set apart ourselves from this world, that we would fully give ourselves over to you, and that we would, you would guide our thoughts and our actions as we are prepared for holiness until the day we face your Son in heaven. Lord, we love and cherish and appreciate all that you do for us. May we feast on the daily bread that is Jesus every day for our strength. Lord, help us fight the evil and temptations of this world and to be seen as the evidence of your glory to those around us. And we ask this all in the name of your glorious Son. Amen.